0: You know, here at Disciple Dojo, every January, I try to devote to focusing on aspects of scripture, of theology, biblical studies that specifically have to do with Judaism, whether it's reviewing Jewish study Bibles or reading works by Jewish authors or works that bring out something of the Jewish background of the New Testament. That's kind of what we focus on at the beginning of each year. And last year at SBL, my friend Lois Deverberg gave me some copies of books that she had written. Now, if you don't know Lois, she has a number of books in the Rabbi Jesus series. She was kind enough to give me copies of each of these. I read them this month and I said, hey, Lois, you want to come on the dojo and let's talk about the Jewishness of Jesus. And she said, of course. So it was really cool to sit and chat with her. Lois is such a sweetheart. She's so much fun. She has a heart for bringing together the best in Jewish thought and the best in Christian thought. Her background on how she came to focus on the Jewishness of Jesus is very unique. And she's someone that I want Dojo viewers to know about because the work that she puts out is both accessible and reputable from a scholarly perspective. There's a lot of stuff out there when it comes to the Hebrew roots movement or the Jewishness of Jesus. There are a lot of urban legends. There are a lot of folk tales that get passed around, stories online, things having to do with whether the name of Yahweh is the sound of breathing in Hebrew, or the gospel is hidden in the first word of the book of Genesis, if you really know Hebrew, or that the eye of the needle was actually a gate back in Jerusalem that you would have to stoop down and unload your gear and get your camel to squeeze through. And that's what Jesus was talking about. And his Jewish audience would have known about it. Things having to do with Passover, over and the tradition of the folded napkin and what that would have symbolized. And Jesus's grave clothes being folded was like the folded napkin. And so that would have told his followers that he's coming back and this and that. There's just a lot of examples of like that, that sounds plausible and interesting and esoteric, and so people will share it on TikTok, they'll share it in Facebook groups about the Jewishness of scripture, Hebrew roots, or sacred names or all this kind of stuff. And here's the thing, the desire to want to know the Jewish background, the Hebrew understanding that Jesus was operating from within, it's a commendable desire. It's it's a good thing to want to know. So it's not a desire for that kind of knowledge that's the problem. It's the made-up wacky nonsense that's the problem. So being able to sift historical truth from made up nonsense requires discernment. It requires study and it requires a level of healthy skepticism. So we don't get carried off by the latest new teaching that we saw online that claims to unravel the mysteries of the gospel that the church has hidden for centuries, blah, blah, blah. That's the kind of stuff that feeds into conspiracy theorists. Lois's work doesn't do that. And that's what I like about it. Lois's work focuses on, hey here is the historical background here are citations from the rabbinic literature here are plausible arguments that Could shed light on what Jesus meant by certain terms, certain figures of speech. We talked all about that in this discussion. And so I'm excited for Dojo viewers to have a a little bit more insight when it comes to the Jewishness of Jesus. Now we could barely scratch the surface of what all Lois has written. And those who stick around to the end of this interview, you're going to find out how you can win not just a copy of these three volumes in her Rabbi Jesus series, but three other volumes that she's either written or edited as well, Lois is going to do a giveaway and we'll tell you the rules and how you enter and when the date for entering is at the end of this interview. But if you appreciate this ministry, if you enjoy these types of long form discussions, one of the best ways that you can help us continue is just by clicking the subscribe button and hitting the little notifications icon that really does make a big difference in helping this channel grow. And that in turn helps us continue to do what we do and to offer it all completely free of charge. Thank you to those of you that have already done it. You are the reason that we're able to keep going and we really, really appreciate it. Okay, let's talk to my friend, Lois Tverberg. So we're here with Lois Tverberg, and I actually had to ask Lois how to pronounce her last name because I had never, I'd seen it spelled, and I'd read her book and seen it on the cover, but the the consonant cluster at the beginning threw me off, and so she was nice enough at SBL last year to say, oh, well, this is how you say it. <laughs> that's right. So it's very helpful. So if you ever wonder, that's how you pronounce it, Tverberg, correct? Yes, yeah. that's right. Now that's you're before we jump into it, your um, wh- what's your background? You talk some in your books about it, um, like where your family's from, where you grew up. What's your wh- where's your background?
1: Well, I was born a, a Norwegian white bread eating uh, Iowa small town Iowa resident, mm-hmm. and so you'd be surprised at how I entered into this because I actually. I'm Lutheran by background. My grandparents were Lutheran missionaries. And so my parents were devout. Uh, they had lots of, see all my books. My parents had jillions of Christian books on their Christian their bookshelves. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we were actually kind of a science-oriented family, and I'm the youngest of seven. And so I was a nerd, <laughs> like my sisters and my brother.
0: We love That's, nerds here. Nerd, love this is a nerd-friendly nerd. zone.
1: <laughs> Amen,
0: that's right <laughs> Yeah. That's right. Well, um, you <clears throat> raised Lutheran But now you have a ministry That is, focuses on the Jewish background of Jesus Our Rabbi Jesus And you write written books about the background, the Jewish background, and why it's so important. I, I wanted to ask you to share not only how you got from your Lutheran upbringing to focusing on the Jewish aspects of the gospel, but you went a roundabout way because your PhD was in biology. Is that right? All right. So just connect those dots real quick before we I'll jump in and start talking. It
1: sure. Well, God has His ways. <laughs> I my undergrad, I'm sorry, was my major was physics. Mm-hmm. I was a nut of science. I was a big Star Trek nerd, too. Yes,
0: I so love Star Trek
1: science, I was a physics major, but I got fascinated with biology. I said, oh, this is great. Let's go to graduate school in biology. And so I switched there, and then I did molecular biology. I did all sorts of heavy-duty, high-tech, um, state-of-the-art science, sciencing, what that was doing was actually teaching me how to read scholarly literature in a field I had never been in before, figure out what these odd words were, and then try to figure out um, kind of how to speak a new language. And kind of, that's actually a skill that I use even now in my research is I, I and to switch fields, to learn the vocabulary, and then to be able to interact or or evaluate, especially to evaluate the difference between a person who's being um, careful and honest with their data versus somebody who has already got their predetermined little theory that they're trying to buoy up with foolishness. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that's why the Lord sent me to graduate school in the sciences, because it teaches you how to to be a little discerning yeah. <laughs> it's unique in this area so
0: yeah nothing's yeah. wasted you know none of our life no. experiences are wasted that's, right. that's for sure
1: no.
0: but didn't. so where did where did the interest in um the rabbinic and the jewish uh no. hebrew background of the new testament where did that fall in
1: my first job was teaching as a biology professor at Hope College here in Holland, Michigan, and I still live about a block away where the, and I still have lots of professor friends that mm-hmm. are my friends. When you join your next your first church, they always ask you, how do you want to use your spiritual gifts to and I, so I was teaching little classes at my church, you mm-hmm. know, little Bible study kinds of things. um, and my area, I, do you know of this fellow named Ray Vanderlaan?
0: I do. I do indeed. I've used his material over the years in, in church settings.
1: Yes. Yes. So you have seen his interest in Israel. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I Ho- Holland, Michigan is full of Dutch people and Ray Vanderlaan is mm-hmm. very Dutch because he lives in the area. And so he was doing this big series at the church that I was trained I was trying to decide whether I wanted to join it and i and I had heard him on focus on the family one day when I was driving into work and went well mm-hmm. oh, that was good and so this was a it was a thirty week long series it was a very intense well it was it was also there was fourteen hundred people in the class mm-hmm. I got the very last ticket I thought that I had an, a very Good Sunday school knowledge from my Lutheran background. You know, I had been involved in Bible studies in mm-hmm. college. When he started um, showing the land, the culture, and the Jewish context, wow! And then there's another thing going on is that um, in the 1980s, especially, uh, but it still lingers on. There is a real skepticism among scholarship. That Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Even there's quite a few scholars saying, "I don't think we hear him actually making any actual claims." When you read the Synoptic Gospels, mm-hmm. the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you sure you hear lots of claims in John and in Paul. But was I don't think. And so my my New Testament professor, he was kind of cynical, and uh, and you know, and I'm trying to be an intelligent. You know, okay, I can work with what the current theories are, and so you know, okay, it's I was, it kind of meant that you had to hold your Bible about a foot away and then barely kind of read it because right. like you don't really know that anything is <laughs> there. So it, you know, but I'm not like I'm like horrified and mad at him or whatever. Just okay, but then when Ray came along and he is saying absolutely the opposite mm-hmm. about, and I'm straight out of graduate school where I can. I can look at data and see how the thing. And so I said, "Let's see his sources." Hmm. And I was in a small, um, uh, small class with him, twenty-five people, where he said he started handing us his scholarly sources. Oh, so it was actually—it wasn't so much in his kind of general class; it was in the class where we started reading the scholars, where he was reading and getting his stuff, and um. What I had discovered, well, what he had discovered, he had studied in Jerusalem several months, uh, or he took a, I don't know how long it was. Um, He leads trips there. But he had been put in touch with a small group of Christian and Jewish scholars that were studying the Synoptic Gospels together, reading very closely. And they were publishing some really outstanding work. It wasn't getting an audience in America. It was getting an audience in Israel, among other scholars, mm-hmm. they were fascinated. And so um, I have been doing a lot of writing from their material, and that's where my main sources are. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, I've read more widely than them, but um, they're, I'm pretty close friends with most of them. So...
0: That, so one of the things that jumps out of me about that story is for you. So th- this was, if viewers don't know, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, this was during the heyday of the Jesus seminar, right? Like when they were yeah. in the news. Yes. Yeah, so... Back in the '80s and early '90s, mainly late '80s, the the Jesus Seminar group of scholars that were basically approached Scripture with an extreme hermeneutic of suspicion. Um, yeah. The idea was we can't trust any of this in its final form, so we're going to go back and try to ferret out the sources. And what's authentic and what's not authentic. And they used colored marbles to vote on what's, you know, they thought goes back to actual Jesus, which in the end turned out to be very little. And then right. what was all later additions. And mm-hmm. as a scholar, as somebody who is trained in the sciences, mm-hmm. I feel like you are in the perfect position to see the flawed methodology in mm-hmm. such an approach that average people sitting in the mm-hmm. pews, they would just hear. Or read, say, read in Newsweek or Time or something. Biblical scholars find that Jesus didn't say blah 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 blah, and sure. they don't ever have they don't have the ability to go back and and check the sources like you talked about, yeah. and so it's very easy to get led into whatever somebody wants to put forward, and yeah. for you being able to. Yeah, get the sources, you know, get okay. Let's look at first century documents, let's look at rabbinic concepts, let's look at history. Yep. It mm-hmm. actually gave you a broader, fuller, and a, more orthodox understanding of the gospel. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. That's that's that is the people say, like, oh, just give me application, just give me practical teaching. And I mean, that's why Disciple Dojo we push scholarly learning and biblical languages and historical background we highlight that and have authors like yourself or scholars like our mutual friend richard Milton or carmen imes or all these other people we have them on because yeah. there are so many people like you were then yeah. who hunger for yeah. okay give me the show me show your work <laughs> like, yeah. show your sources <laughs> give me
1: show me the data give me the raw data yeah I, to tell you how much I love Ra- I um to be the very first person to see data that has never been touched mm-hmm. is the most I have um one of my scholar friends who's been one of the writers. He's also been the guy. his name is Steve Notley that has been digging uh, and finding the Bethsaida that's the real one, not the fake one mm-hmm. uh, uh, and it's right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And mm-hmm. so anyhow. Um, but when and I've taken a couple people there, um, young ladies who wanted to go, but they've never traveled to Israel, so I took them. Mm -hmm. So then I got gave me an excuse to go do all my business in Israel. Mm -hmm. But, um, um, when I was there, when I was actually at the dig, and you were, you, your shovel was hitting the ground and opening it up and saying, This is the thing that's not been touched by anybody. Mm -hmm. Oh, that. Oh, that's the most exciting thing you've ever seen. So That's what <laughs> scientists like is raw, raw data. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. Well, it's necessary, and and the, the the reason that people shy away from that though is because there is there's a gap between the scholarly data and findings, yep. and your everyday person who just wants to know. Okay, so what does this mean, and what does this have to do with my life? And there's a huge gap. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, I think your work helps span that gap. And that's a similar calling to what Disciple Dojo does. We're trying to get the academy into the pew. Um, and your books, I think, are a good gap of uh, filling that gap in the middle
1: <laughs>
0: this month. Uh, so January here at Disciple Dojo, I always call Judaism January. I, I focus on reading and studying and posting about things that have to do with the with Judaism the backgrounds the Hebrew backgrounds of the Bible, concepts of Israel just all of that kind of stuff and so this month I read mm-hmm. distinctly three tiers of readings I started with a, a a book by my friend Scott Folk uh just one of my dear dear friends love him to death we have some Fairly significant disagreements, but I still just salt of the earth. Love the guy, okay. and he wrote a very popular level book um, about the the Hebrew background of Christianity. It's called "Jesus okay. Was Not a Christian," okay. and is but it was very popular level, and it was very um you know it's like you could lead a small group and and work through it. And then on the other end, I'm just currently reading right now Jason Staples' book on the concept of Israel in second temple Judaism. And it's at the other end. It is entirely scholarly focused, interacting with other secondary literature, heavily footnoted. So there's a huge gap. Your books were the others that I read this month and they fit right in that sweet spot in the middle, Mm -hmm. bridging the two. And so I wanted to have you on, I wanted to Mm -hmm. share your works and I wanted to go through a couple of the books that you've written. I've re- I've read three of your books. So you, the first time we met at SBL, you gave me, I believe, your middle one, Walking in the Dust of yeah. Rabbi Jesus. And yeah. then this past SBL, you said, hey, oh, hey, I have some books. Do you want them? I was like, sure. sure. Uh, sure. And so you were nice enough to give me um, the, I believe this was the oldest one that you did with Ann Spangler, uh, sitting at mm-hmm. the feet of Rabbi Jesus. Right. And then I believe this is the newest one, Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus. That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's right. So I read these i'd already read the middle one last year and i read these two this month and what i wanted to do was talk about some of the passages in it and just let you unpack a little bit and maybe share some extra thoughts okay. uh, and so we can just go in order of the books
1: and also, of course people always like are they all the same thing or do you have to read them in one order and the answer is no and no right no. <laughs> but, the
0: amazing. only reason I knew that these were in that order is because of the publication dates. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. They they were all standalone and they all can, uh, yeah. they can be read in different. So the let's talk about, mm-hmm. let, let's talk about sitting at the feet of rabbi Jesus.
1: Okay. So sure.
0: you wrote this with Ann Spengler and how did this, how did it come about? What was the, what well, got the ball rolling?
1: Well, okay, here. Okay. Okay. Uh, here, I'll tell you about the world of publishing. The Rabbi Jesus series is actually not my first set of books. Mm. Um, I actually, for the, the ones who have, I, the first book was uh, homemade, I guess. I, uh, uh-huh. Self-published, um, listening to the language of the Bible, hearing it through Jesus' ears. I uh, I formed a little ministry uh, in my area with this fellow, Bruce Oakmon, his mm-hmm. wife, um, and then, and this has lots and lots of little, um, uh, little, one-page insights. We were kind of, we were trying to make it clickbaity. <laughs> this, is, this is born at the cusp of the internet. It uh-huh. was published two thousand and four, and so we didn't know anything about that. But we wanted something that people like. Oh, that looks good, but okay. I don't have to. Try too hard. He actually <laughs> has like jobs of content in it. And then people said, I want to do a Bible study. And so we made a Bible study. Nice. Anyhow, so um, I live near Grand Rapids mm-hmm. and um, this lady, Ann Spangler, is uh, she has been in publishing for many years and she has bestselling books of her own. And somebody gave her a copy of this book. Uh, she had done one called The Hebrew Names of God, mm-hmm. which, which had a little Hebrew name of God mm-hmm. on little short chapters. And they said, well, look at the book that this other lady has. It looks just like yours. And I'd never seen it. Anyhow, she actually um, is my literary agent. She writes, helps me write the contracts. Mm-hmm. But she's also a good um she also said, oh, Louis, you write kind of like a professor. You need to warm it up a little bit and tell some fun stories and kind of, right. you know, reach out to your readers more. And so, anyhow, that's so my, so Zondervan, when they signed the contract, they said, we would like to have Anne be a part of the book so that it is more warm and embracing.
0: <laughs> so that's
1: the reason why. Although, I, um, yeah, it's so So I I warmed it up a little bit Mm -hmm. with and and then my next my other books have just been by myself right right reason
0: well that's and now the the second one or no the third one your newest one is not with Zondervan though it's with Baker correct
1: that's right yeah that's
0: right we'll talk about that one in a minute but I want to I want to start with the reason that I wanted to start with this quote is because it is perfectly fitting for everything Disciple Dojo tries to be. The reason this ministry is named Disciple Dojo, yeah, yeah,
1: great.
0: I read this as page 33 of your book. I'm going to read the quote and and then I want you to tell me why this matters to you. Okay. But it says, um, you start, I'll start midway through the first paragraph you say, but it's important to realize that debate was a central aspect of study. The rabbis believed that a mark of an excellent student was his ability to argue well. One rabbi lamented the death of his stiffest opponent because he had no one to spar with, no one who would force him to refine his thinking. Though some of Jesus' listeners tried to trap him with clever questions, others debated him simply because this was how study and teaching was done. In the Gospel According to Moses, Christian writer Athol Dixon tells the fascinating story of his involvement with a Torah study group at the local synagogue. One day when the presiding rabbi was having trouble generating group discussion, he fired off question after question, finally tossing out a provocative comment to stir things up. But still the group was silent. Exasperated, the rabbi claimed, "'Come on, people! Somebody disagree with me! How can we learn anything if no one will disagree?' Yeah. That's such a great quote. So tell me, tell us a little bit about this sparring background, especially within rabbinic studies and, and how that well, would affect Jesus.
1: Hey, I have to say, I got to first tell people that as my, from my Norwegian Lutheran background, this is about the last thing because we're, we like to be nice and not disagree <laughs> with anybody. It's part of the reason why this book was more popular than others is it was not as obnoxious as what i could have written i was like sweet to everybody but no yeah, um i assume i think hopefully some most of your listeners or watchers have watched uh, fiddler on the roof mm-hmm. uh, you know where you got Tivia on the one hand but on the other hand and that used to drive me nuts and I, it's like Just logically, elegantly work through a solution. And once you have the truth, then let's go from there. Mm -hmm. Don't just do this back and forth thing. It feels a lot like you have your truth, but I have my truth. But what's kind of going on, well, obviously, is that uh, the Jews don't assume that the humans are going to have final say. They assume that the Torah and God's Word is ultimately going to be the final. They will finally say, okay, we go with this. And there are points at where you kind of have to decide, we just got to go with this. As opposed to the Christian way where you say, we have a few noted scholars and a creed that will just show us what we believe. And, you know, there's actually a use to that, too, because there's all been all sorts of heresies. There's a reason why. But, you know, Jews define themselves as we are the people of God because we are part of this family that was the family. We're related to those people. That's the way of, and, and of course, Christians define ourselves by we believe in Jesus. And so it's our beliefs our belief is what defines us. And so we're going to be much more careful about how we believe. And they're much more careful about, well, um, well, they've got other things to be careful about. You know, they can be very careful about who's in the family and who isn't in a way that we aren't, you know, that we don't hear at all. So mm-hmm. that's helpful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the idea of sparring, yeah, getting better, that's something, what you're saying is that, that You can see that in the gospel sometimes. Like not everyone who questioned or challenged Jesus necessarily would have been his enemy. No, in, in it's an,
1: not always hostile. We tend to always read, kind of read into a, a hostility. Although some of the questions he's being asked are just gold, pure gold. They're very wise. And there are other usually later answers to those questions by other rabbis mm-hmm. that add on to, that reflect on it from a different direction. Like, what's the greatest commandment in the uh, Mahu klal Gadol Torah? What is the greatest commandment of the Torah? And so there are various discussions going on about it. And Jesus being, you know, and the way it's usually preached is, yeah, they just wanted to catch him because mm-hmm. he's stupid. You know, they didn't like him and he wanted to catch him. And so that we tend to always be kind of coloring everything dark in order to make Jesus look more beautiful.
0: Right. So right.
1: so we kind of have to kind of curb your curb your enthusiasm for um painting his background blacker in order right. to make him better. And even kind of maybe back up and say, maybe they were doing maybe there was a few issues, emotional issues between the people writing it and the crowd around them. Some hurt feelings where they're going to kind of hear that in places where it was not. Uh, and don't forget that, you know, Jesus is out there without, well, he is teaching as a, well, the technical term is proto-Rabbinic sage. There, It's not until after 70 AD there you start having academies that are set up where you have it exactly, this one was a, a state right.
0: of... Right. So,
1: so it's all kind of informal. And so the folks who are out there with the most knowledge, when this new person comes in and just starts saying crazy things, or it, it's part of just being discerning as a community is, where are you getting that? Mm-hmm. Why are you saying that? And so they kind of have a duty to even ask them hard questions and push back.
0: Yeah, that's a great insight that I think people should consider more as they're reading the Gospels, especially Christians, because Christians are so used to reading ever since, I mean, the early church, uh, but the Reformation didn't help either. The the Judaism became sort of the bad guy. Therefore, Jesus was the good guy. And so whatever the Jews of Jesus's time were saying or doing, that's the bad thing. And what yep. jesus is doing is like correct and that's really like a you're on the slippery slope to marcionism when you embrace that approach because judaism in the first century was just as multifaceted if not more than judaism yeah. today but not everything that the, the the scholars the scribes the pharisees even the priests not everything they did was right. was malicious now The gospel writers, obviously, they let us know when they are being malicious and the ones who do come to trap Jesus Mm -hmm. as opposed to genuinely push him, maybe. Um, But I mean, like in there's there's a let me nerd out about martial arts for a minute. uh, Since this is Disciple Dojo, the martial art I study and teach is Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is very much like rabbinic Judaism in that your lineage is crucial. Who gave you your black belt? Who gave him his black belt or her, her black belt? And you can, because it's relatively new, especially in America, you can usually trace somebody's lineage back maybe four or five instructors to somebody everybody knows. Well, if a new person moves into a town and opens up a school and starts teaching Brazilian Jitsu, and they advertise themselves as a black belt and they start mm-hmm. taking money from students and, and signing up and do it is not uncommon, less so today. But when I started training, it was not uncommon for other jujitsu people in the area to go there, mm-hmm. maybe incognito as a new okay. student signing up or maybe to go there officially and to say, hey, let's train together and uh-huh. and to challenge them, basically, and to see if they were who they said they were and to see oh, how really? good their jujitsu was. Oh,
1: really? Fascinating.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and it's very, very similar To, I think, what you talk about many of the opponents of Jesus were doing at the time. Because if he was a false teacher, it was the job of the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders to turn people away from false teachers. Like that that was what God wanted them to do.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm.
0: But he wasn't. And his answers, the ones who recognized his answers and the wisdom and, and just and the miracle, I mean, not even counting the miracles. Yeah. You know, that's where they, the ones who believed, the ones maybe who took a little longer to believe, like the Nicodemuses yeah. and others, but eventually came around.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: They realized this guy's actually passed the test. Yeah. You know, he's yeah. he's vetted. He's, he's legit.
1: Really good. This is really good. I haven't heard it before, but boy, is this really good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly and honestly the i should say the jewish scholars that this you know i told you in jerusalem where they were reading his words and they're like they're going this is really sophisticated he is brilliant you don't get he look at what he's doing he's pulling in this text and this text and this text and his um there sometimes people um certainly like parables uh, Jewish parables, People, you'll hear, and I'm I'm sure you even, you probably heard it so many times, you you take it as true as that oh, Jesus was just using, using the same forms as others and just repeating other parables from mm, no, actually, his are oldest, his are of the very earliest and oldest. I can give you a book where they, they look at all of them and the ones before him are very very brief and very little simple analogies and then after them they blossom and they're a little different style some often there are thousands of them you can see that they're using the same themes as jesus and you can so part of the reason why you read rabbinic literature is you can they have a you know the house of hillel and the house of shammai um those two Proto-Rabbinic sages lived just before Jesus' time, and Jesus is asked to comment on, you know, what do you think about the ruling on divorce? Mm -hmm. And so, he makes that comment. Well, what's interesting is that the rest of rabbinic literature spends a lot of time just sitting there discussing the issues that were debated when Jesus was there. And so, Jews even today, as they're reading Talmudic literature, are reading stuff that harkens back even to the first century, because that was, that's kind of been preserved in the Mishnah and the Talmud. Is these debates that were going on, mm-hmm. conveniently in the first century. Yeah. <laughs> There's later stuff that's accrued on top of it, but you often can get a sense of a wider conversation. And then, believe it or not, occasionally you hear. Uh, like, uh, I my favorite chapters of my book is this chapter I wrote on the where Jesus talks about do not judge. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like, what does that mean? It's one of those, uh, but rabbinic parables about that are brilliant and gorgeous, and they help you understand why Jesus was talking about it, and everybody liked it so much. So, that's mm-hmm. so. Anyhow, well, one,
0: one of my one of my very, very good friends here, uh, my friend Isaac, who is Jewish yeah. and he's he's focus is focuses is rabbinics. Um, and I've had him on the show before viewers check out the episode uh, where Isaac and I discussed his story. And, and he has showed me so many times where the rabbis will hmm. be debating something and it's and, and how it affects, you know, how it would read scripture. But the, the thing that's so interesting to me is when you read later rabbinic discussions and there are, you know, the Mishnah, the Mishnah has stuff that could very plausibly go back to the first century, if not before, uh, yeah. but it right. was compiled after the time of Jesus. Yeah. And then the Talmud was compiled even after that yep. getting into like early medieval, late classical period. Yep. But when you read those discussions,
1: Great. Mm-hmm.
0: you are struck by Mm-hmm. both similarity and dissimilarity. Like you, the similarity is you see that kind of the world in which Jesus lived and moved and had his right. being and the Jewishness with which he, his teachings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just clear. You see him when you read it, but you're also struck by the profound mm-hmm. differences in yeah. conclusions yeah. and methodology and, yes. and, and authority, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus never cites a rabbi as authoritative where that's, all you have in the Talmud.
1: Yeah, right. And that's, yeah, Talmud, 500 years. You also don't hear Hillel or Shammai citing anybody. That's because in the earliest times, they weren't doing that. And it, so sometimes it's not just Jesus versus the, he doesn't, you're right. Yes, there are very di- there are some ways it's very different what they're doing, but um, yes. But sometimes the the, I'm kind of, I'll, I'm just doing the, spar, I'm sparring with you, is that <laughs> I push, Is that um, even Christian scholars will kind of artificially make a, they're like, oh, everything after 70 AD is like incredibly different. It was totally, Jesus is totally, well, uh, one scholar I know has pointed out just what I told you about the parables being, mm. if you want to, there's thousands of parables about kings and having banquets and shepherds. Shepherding sheep. They sound a lot like Jesus. You won't, and uh, most New Testament scholars will not touch anything rabbinic. They're like, oh, no, no, hundreds of years later.
0: Right.
1: Well, you know what? Those parables are all in rabbinic. There are no parables in Josephus or in the Dead Sea Scrolls Mm -hmm. or in Philo. None of them. And so if you won't touch anything that is post-Jesus, that is rabbinic, you're actually cutting off your ability to read an awful lot of context. And some of it is actually hearkening back that far, but it is later, but you have to be a little. But um, we have been overzealous in our chopping of off that context that we don't, this might be useful might not be but it might be
0: well no i agree with you it is i think it's very useful i think Mm -hmm. my point about it being later was saying even though it was later it preserves core things that go back to the first century
1: exactly
0: and so i what i'm trying to i think what i would press people to adopt would be a balanced use of rabbinics because some people like you said some scholars will just dismiss it all as irrelevant it was after 70 AD doesn't have anything to do. It's like, well, no, those traditions just didn't emerge after 70 AD. But the other side of the spectrum, we can talk more about this later. Some people read everything from the Mishnah and later Talmudic discussions. They try to shoehorn that back into the first century. And that's when you start, that's when you're misusing the data. Uh, You know, you're rather sifting through and saying, what in this likely reflects Jesus's environment? And, and th- at that point, when you do, I think that, and your books do a good job of pointing this out, yep. that you start to develop a plausible understanding of the, the theological, theological is not even the right word, the cultural theological climate mm-hmm. that Jesus operated from within. And you're, it's like your ear gets tuned to hear more, mm-hmm. I don't even want to say rabbinic, because that's a that, well, little anachronistic, but more uniquely Jewish well, approaches.
1: early Jewish, early, early proto- rabbinic or early rabbinic or yeah. whatever, early Jewish because they kind of consider post seventy as modern Judaism. So they when they say early Jewish, mm-hmm. they're kind of talking about first century also. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: it's it's a great just all that that whole discussion, the idea of sparring, uh, the yeah. idea of disagreement being how you learn. Yeah, Uh, I'm a big proponent of that. People, people say, oh, nobody changes their mind based on a social media post. I I disagree. I've changed my mind on a number of things based on interactions I've had with people on social media where they've challenged what I believe. They've shared data that I didn't know about. They've pointed me in the right direction. And I'm like, oh, if you're not, if you don't think anybody learns from arguing, you're just not arguing right.
1: (laughs) You're arguing well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, You're
0: exactly. arguing to win rather than arguing yeah. to learn. And I think there's a oh, difference yeah, between right. the two. That's
1: right. Mm-hmm. That's right.
0: Well, I want to, you talked about, I want to um, jump to page 176. And right. there's a quote oh. that you had. Mm-hmm. And, and this is sort of like a touchstone um, first, maybe some of the other stuff we'll talk about in a bit, but this you, you give examples in the book throughout Ooh. about how phrases that are ubiquitous in the New Testament that we Christians just read without yeah. even really thinking about it. Yeah. And we read our own meaning based on our English concepts of what those words mean back into it. So you talk about many places where actually there was a Jewish background that mm-hmm. if you know about it, it yes. fills out more what jesus was talking about or what's possible i mean there's we always operate with degrees of certainty and nothing's like ironclad this is what he was referring to but knowing the background you can say actually it's pretty plausible that Mm -hmm. this would have been in his mind Mm
1: -hmm. right and one
0: example you give is on page 176 Mm -hmm. you say you also recognize another jewish idiom concerning abolishing and fulfilling the law Mm-hmm. To fulfill a law could simply mean doing what it says. But when Jesus contrasts fulfilling with abolishing the law, you know, he's employing a rabbinic idiom. Mm-hmm. So yep. walk viewers through what that rabbinic idiom most okay. likely would have been in abolishing and fulfilling Torah.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, you hear the words, okay, um, uh, to... Well, fulfill, we always think it means to get it done and check it off. Like a prophecy, fulfill, check it off, throw it away. But when you fulfill a law, well, the most obvious thing is that you do what the heck it says. And also, um, it was extended that it also meant to teach in order to explain it well, so that you do it well. And so, you'll hear rabbinic quotes about, do not... Do not sit by yourself and study, but go away to a place where the others are doing the commandments or they are fulfilling the Torah in your hand so that you can see it right in front of you. They're fulfilling it by and they're explaining it to you by their doing of. It. And so there's this mixed understanding. So that's that's Livatel That's the um batal. No, sorry. That's that. That's abolishing. Um, um Le kayem is based on kum, the verb to stand up, mm-hmm. to establish, mm-hmm. uh, to make a steady. That's to fulfill or to establish right. the command. So that's um, uh, on. But to nullify or cancel um, is levatel to cancel, um, and you do that by uh, by saying, well, this command really doesn't say that you need to. Uh, I say, you know, if a new pastor comes to town, he says, you know, you can cheat on your taxes as long as you donate it to your church, and uh, you you're you are nullifying what God has commanded us by how you've interpreted it, and so that's that's a, a lot of what's going on. Um, honestly, it's more than just that's a classic that helps a lot of people understand. Um, why is he talking about abolishing the Torah? He's talking about, I come to teach the the Torah and do the Torah as it's supposed to be done. I'm not coming to cancel and nullify it. Right. And people are like, what? But there's a big Im- important thing that probably kind of will throw your people off. He's talking to a completely Jewish audience and he's speaking about the Jewish Torah to the Jewish people, mm-hmm. and we Gentiles come along when Paul comes in. So now we're kind of messing with you. So in you know in Acts 15 it talks about apostles all sat down and said uh, it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit not to ask the Gentiles to do any more than these or um, basic do not murder, do not right. worship idols, whatever. Um, and so they were releasing. Christian uh, believers in Jesus who are Gentiles from doing the Torah. It, it was it, they said, you know, they can keep learning. They'll keep hearing it, uh, it, and so they keep learning from it. But they don't have to do all of that. And so, when Christians often they think that the that Jesus abolished the law because it got he just chopped it off and it's done. No, actually, the New Te- No, the New Testament doesn't say that. It says that he. Uh, that the that Gentiles have not been asked to. It's not. It's not about the time. It's about the. It's about the. It's about the fact that we're Gentiles and not Jews that we're not asked to do all of those things. There's yeah. a. That's a whole big long discussion. I used to kind of avoid talking about it because it was too scary. But <laughs> I'm much more sure, and I have a lot more data that I could show you. Yeah. So.
0: Well the point that is worth highlighting yeah. and emphasizing yeah. in that right. chapter is right. b- abolishing fulfilling and abolishing yeah. uh Jesus talking to a Jewish audience yeah. they they would not have thought i mean they wouldn't have thought that, that anyone would say i'm come to abolish like do away yeah, which, with. That wouldn't no, even be on their radar. Yeah, um, right, anybody yeah. who even remotely did that was cut off. Like you're not even yeah, you're b- worse than yeah. a false teacher. Yeah. That's not what j- was on Jesus's mind now like you point out later after Acts, you know, the yeah. Acts 15 um the the get together of the apostles when they had to say okay now we've got all these Gentiles coming in, what yeah. of the Torah do they need to be doing, what can they not right. do? Yeah. Then it became a question, and then in later discussions, obviously, uh, Gentiles and their relationship to the law, and Jewish believers and their relationship to the law, that was yeah. a big issue, and Paul had to yeah. flesh that out in a mostly Gentile context. But Jesus yeah. is back before all that. Yeah. Jesus right. is talking to mm-hmm. those who would have immediately heard. Yeah. I don't think. I, would Would you agree with this paraphrase or rephrasing of what Jesus is saying? Yeah. Don't think. I've come to misinterpret the law or to right. be loose with the law.
1: Undermine, undermine the law. Okay. Yeah.
0: Undermine. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause we, we just, we think of abolish and we just like, oh yeah, do away with. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That, that's a great example. Folks read the chapter, uh, mm-hmm. in sitting at the feet of rabbi Jesus for mm-hmm. more on that particular issue and a number okay. of others, but your comment leads directly nice segue into something you talk about in walking in the dust of rabbi jesus and that is on the at the beginning on page 22 you talk about and you leave the person unnamed until the footnote or the end note uh we will not i will not name who this pastor is But you say, as I was growing up, what I usually heard about Jesus's Jewish context was how much he opposed it and was bringing it to an end. Unfortunately, that attitude is not just a relic of the past. Just a few months ago, I happened to tune my car radio to hear a popular pastor put it this way. Now, this is what this very popular, very well-known pastor, I think far more influential than he needs to be. That's just my own personal opinion. But you say, this pastor said, When Mm -hmm. Jesus came, everything changed. Everything changed. He didn't just want to clean up the people's attitudes as they gave their sacrifices. He obliterated the sacrificial system because he brought an end to Judaism with all its ceremonies, all its rituals, all its sacrifices, all of its external trappings, the temple, the Holy of Holies, all of it. Mm -hmm. And then you say after that, if this were what Jesus taught, his first passionate followers in Acts certainly didn't catch his drift. Yeah. What do you mean by that? I know what you mean by that.
1: Well, because they spend pretty much all their time in the temple for the many chapters in the book of Acts. You find them hanging out there all the time, hanging out in Solomon's portico worshiping. You see Paul giving um, giving sacrifices. You see Peter um, uh, healing the guy at the beautiful gate. They spend all their time there what's ironic, I mean, one, you what a thing that you do see Jesus doing is denouncing the corruption within the high priestly sect. And you actually find that recorded in later Jewish things talking about, you know what, the house of Ananias was really corrupt. Yeah, while Jesus was denouncing that, it wasn't talking about the temple as a whole as much as the the priesthood that was sneaking around and uh, charging excess amounts for sacrifices and that kind of thing, and so because of that corruption, enough people knew about it that the 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 Essenes, the movement that we have a lot of their writings from Quran, they had completely um, divorced themselves from the temple and had moved out into the desert to do all their worship out in the desert. So there were there were movements in Judaism that had said we don't the temple is corrupt and we can't stand it. But it wasn't Jesus's movement. And so to say that that was what he was saying, that's what I I wrote an article a long time ago called Test Your Jesus Theories in the Book of Acts. Mm. Because you know that these people, they're fresh, fresh. And they know, they've heard him just recently and they know exactly. And so if he says things like pluck out your eye, are they all plucking out their eyes? No. (laughs) But if he says, Give away, give your possessions to the poor. What are they doing? Oh, they're giving away their possessions to the poor. And so sometimes it can, it, oh, well, I wouldn't have guessed they would have taken that seriously. So um, that's what I hear from that. What is that what you're thinking of or what were you asking me? Again?
0: Yes. No, I'm, I was just asking you to unpack that <laughs> thought, what you meant by his followers not getting the drift. Uh, yeah. And that's what, yeah, you explained that exactly right. That what's fascinating to me is you can have someone mm-hmm. who is such a well-known preacher
1: mm-hmm. who has
0: written commentaries on the old Testament. Now
1: they're preacher mm-hmm.
0: commentaries. I, they're not mm-hmm. old Testament scholarship mm-hmm. commentaries, but, mm-hmm. but written on it, taught on it for decades,
1: mm-hmm.
0: not get something as basic as Jesus's yeah. relationship to his, jewish people and to make what is ultimately a much later Mm -hmm. caricature of judaism Mm
1: -hmm. from
0: what it actually was and what jesus thought that it was Mm
1: -hmm.
0: yeah Um, yeah. it's surprisingly sloppy thinking i think that's what it is it's it's surprisingly sloppy thinking uh it's broad brush and Mm -hmm this pastor is known for <laughs> doing that at times and other issues. So it yeah. doesn't surprise me, right. yeah. but it is so widespread. It is. Um, yeah. And he didn't, he's not the first. I mean, he's, it goes oh. back, you know, I mean, some of what, what Martin Luther wrote, um, some of the caricatures even of, of earlier Christian yep. theologians against Judaism. Yep.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There's a, there's a bad history between mm-hmm. Christian Christianity and Judaism. It's not it's not one sided. There have been times where early on the Jewish people who were doing a little bit more of the oppression, but then certainly later and then throughout most of history, it's been on the other side. And Christians have been the ones doing the slander and the oppression and what your work does that I think is beneficial for viewers to know is it tries to say, okay, let's push all of that out of the way. And mm-hmm. let's go back to Jesus and the the dynamics of Judaism in and around the first yeah. century. That's right. That's right. Because then that helps gives us a more nuanced understanding of the dynamics and and of what Jesus was and wasn't coming to do away with. Yeah, That's right. Um There's a lot of there. I mean, I grew I grew up Methodist um, in in United Methodism and. And there's a I've heard so many preachers and mm-hmm. and seminary educated yeah. say yeah. things like, well, that doesn't matter, that's in the old testament. Or you know, Jesus came and did away with all that. Yep. And mm-hmm. I just think, how did you get through any biblical yeah. education and come away with that With such a just a, a unnuanced, sloppy. Yeah. Yeah. False dichotomy view. Yeah. Uh, right. It just it, it boggles my mind. Um, and your work doesn't do that, <laughs> and that's the good thing. That's well, the important thing.
1: I can see that you have a love of the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, like I do. And mm. what I what I I have blessed their I say bless their hearts. I have these wonderful pastors in my Lutheran background. Mm-hmm. They're such nice guys. They they preach so nice. But they want don't wander out of the books of Paul. And I laugh because, you know what? I got four times more Bible than you do. I've got all sorts of great stuff that I can quote because <laughs> I've got a huge Bible. You got this tiny little Bible. Let me tell you where Paul got that from and then I'll read where he got it from, you know, really? and then oh. That makes them. Ge- I want to make them jealous, so they want to learn
0: Paul's Paul's own approach in Romans towards right, his kinsmen. <laughs>
1: here, here, I'll make here. Let me give you one little fun thing, just for a, uh, just because. Let's see.
0: Yeah, go for it, because because right after this, I'm going to ask this you for a few more.
1: Part of what this is, you know, long after I've written about fulfilling and abolishing Torah, mm. um, I bumped into. Probably the there's usually when there's a, a question to Jesus or something going on there's a there's a line in the Torah that is spurring the discussion that is where they started it all and it's at the very end of deuteronomy 27 at the end of all of the curses at the end of all of the it's kind of before the blessings and the curses but you have a little bit of discussion going on where they uh, but the last Line, it says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words. It's probably as opposed to abolish. It's like, the same uh, same idea. Mm-hmm. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this Torah by doing them, and all the people shall say amen. And so, oh, that's part of why he's talking about abolishing verses uh, to. Affirm or uh, to fulfill, and so cursed is the one who does not fulfill all of these words of the law by doing them, confirm them, uh, to make them, to establish them. Um, the, the word comes from, as I said, to stand or to make right. strong, strengthen.
0: Yeah, know. to set up, to to put set into up. place, to establish, right, confirm. Yeah,
1: that's right. I'm, yeah, just showing you where it comes from and like, oh, that was cool. I didn't even know about that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. OK, so,
0: well, there's a number there are a number of those examples. So um, I, I'll just throw some out. You don't we don't have to go in depth on any of them, but maybe give a little one or two sentence background so people can know. You talk about uh, page 45. You talk about the concept, the, the command to love the Lord with all your heart and you say um you know how can god command love command you to feel a certain way mm-hmm. right. but you do see in ancient treaties yeah. commands or or the idea of loving one's king has a very specific meaning and That's it's true. not what we think of all around valentine's day every year with a heart and cupid and all of that you know it, it, yeah. so yeah. what is what is that background to ahava what is What does that mean in Uh, its context? It
1: can be used as covenantal language that when you love your king, it means that you're utterly faithful to your king and you do exactly what he tells you to do. Hmm. That you uh, have him on your mind when you make treaties with other nations. He might be a big, ugly old guy with warts on his nose and you don't sit around your fireplace going, I want to, I wish you could spend more time with him. (laughs) It's because you are utterly faithful to him. Uh, that you love him with all your heart. So yes, it, um, I I write about how many Hebrew words we think of our mental activities are much more focused on their physical manifestation, and mm-hmm. and love is is to act lovingly towards um, when uh, he's when Jesus says, love your enemies and do kindness to those who hate you. Well, that's what loving your enemies is—is to do kindness to those who hate you. You kind of see it's the doing of it more than it is even the thinking in your head about it. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's it. So,
0: well, that's a pitfall in English language because our word "love" does mean primarily emotion, feeling, and "ahava" in Hebrew does not primarily mean emotion, feeling. It means how you act towards someone
1: it's kind of well it's convenient i i write and i write some about the language differences and that's a whole another discussion but um i guess it's a feature not a bug but yeah. that english has its it has the largest um base of words than of any other modern language because it has mushed in and adopted so many, and so it has so many nuances. And every word is very fine, but mm-hmm. on it, it's not just Hebrew. But Hebrew is very word poor. It's about eight, nine thousand words, cool. and um, but actually most oral languages are about that size, mm-hmm. and so each word has to have a wider. Um, um, they call it semantic range—a yeah. wider amount of ideas that it can encompass. And then, if you mush it into bigger phrases, you can refine it. Mm-hmm. But you can't just mat- say each word means exactly one thing. It has to—you right. have to be a brighter. So,
0: yeah, yeah. English has—I mean, that's something that people commonly, uh, I guess, overlook. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. yep. English English has, I think, two. Yep two to three million individual unique words. words. English is like the Borg. Like we just assimilate yeah. everything, you know, like, that's oh, Great. fiance. That's a nice French word. You're mine now. Uh, yeah. You know, Great. adios. Great. We're going to use adios. That's now our, it's like English just like grabs that one. everything. Like that one too. And uh, that's the, Well, ancient languages, one, I mean, Hebrew had more words than are in the Bible. We just only yeah, have the ones a, that are recorded. And so when modern Hebrew was being rebuilt, uh, mm-hmm. they had to take a lot of Yiddish. They had mm-hmm. to Hebraicize uh, mm-hmm. certain other words from European yeah. languages because there right. were no biblical yeah. words for car or computer yeah. or
1: yeah. vacuum you know, cleaner yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so they had to
0: invent it. But ancient yeah. languages almost yeah. across the board were much, much smaller. So that meant that words had to do double, triple, even quadruple duty. And so when you're reading, this is why I get so annoyed with people that are Bible translation tribalists. Um, I've had Mark Ward on the channel before, and he's done a lot of work over at Logos about this. Mm -hmm. And, and I think he's doing fabulous work because he's trying to help people get out of that mindset because people will fight over English renderings Between the ESV and the King James and then NASB 2020, not the NASB 20, whatever. Um, And they just get so focused on that. And I just I'm thinking, well, if you knew Hebrew, Mm -hmm. you really wouldn't care about most of these things. You would recognize or even Greek, you would recognize, oh, yeah, there's a range of ways you can translate certain words that, yes, Mm -hmm. they're going to be spirit, breath, wind. It's all the same hebrew word you got to determine which one it is in the context people get worked up over it but but that's just the nature of language i saw a video on it was just this week on youtube on a language uh the language tokipona and tokipona Ooh, is an invented language and it only has 130 ish words the okay. entire language. And it's so okay. the video was all about it was on a philology channel and it was a, a linguist who, you know, interviewed the person who's like at the head of this, who actually I think she writes songs in this language. And was saying and they were saying that part of it is the language is so simple that it is open to numerous ways of interpreting the same phrase. Sure. right? And yeah. Hebrew certainly not that myopic you know hebrew has every hebrew student wishes there were only 130 vocabulary words we had to learn but but it's compared to english it's so much smaller of a language that's right and so words like ahava they Mm -hmm. you have to determine okay what is the context in this love yeah right and is it talking about valentine's day is it talking about candlelight dinners is it talking right. about even like you when you look and see a cute puppy is that yep. what it's talking about or yep. is it that's talking right. about loyalty and, and i like that you bring that up it makes sense of what jesus says what does jesus say if you love me you will keep mm-hmm. my commandments that's, right. that's clearly it. hebrew background in that language
1: mm-hmm.
0: is it, this it, is how we know we love him The right we walk as he told us to walk
1: mm-hmm. You sound, ooh, what you just said, we walk as you walk. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm putting in a nerdy aside. Yes, do it, we love them. I have a friend, who, Brian Vosnick, I writing his PhD on this, mm-hmm. is that the word walk, as you hear it in the New Testament, it's very common in, in the Greek, herpateo. Uh If you look in classical Greek, it is not ever used like that. Mm. And so when you hear it, it's a very Hebraic understanding always i mean we see it everywhere and right. maybe that's a little tiny thing but it's a big deal to to his thesis it's a big sure. deal but walk as he walks shows that you've got a a, a hebrew thinking brain speaking in greek mm. and so paul says it. he he's thinking hebrew talking greek
0: yeah so ah, yeah a, that's a great example yeah to to Havak to walk in havak, the way yeah okay. very very hebrew that I didn't know that that was not also a Greek idiom, uh, but that that's really fascinating because it shows the influence of biblical mm-hmm. worldview even into a second language. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another one um, you talked about on page seventy and seventy-one: uh, the difference between having a good eye and a bad eye. Sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Unpack that one a little. What is that? What does it mean to have a good eye and a bad eye? And and what's the condo what, What's why did, in Matthew twenty? What is a good eye and what is a bad eye and how does that help us understand what Jesus was talking about?
1: Uh the parable is of the generous farmer who mm. hires people all day long and he pays the people at the end the same as he is the first. Right. And uh and so are is your are you angry because my eye is good or it 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 actually says is your eye bad mm-hmm. is your bad? Poneros, is, is your eye bad because I am good? And and so you can hear right there that eye bad is a way of saying, you have a stingy eye, mm-hmm. and you do find that in Proverbs also. You find the couple, do not eat the bread of the bad eye, because he's calculating all the time about, you know, how to get rid of you or whatever. And so there's various places where you find it. But the place where it comes in most importantly is in uh, Matthew 6, uh, that was the parable from later on, but it's back in, there's this passage where it says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is, this is the biggest problem for translators, like, they didn't know what to use. So I'm looking at the ESV. It says, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. When the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So to have So if you know the idiom, you understand he's talking about if you have a good eye, uh, your whole, I guess I'd say way of life will be one of light, you know, but if you are stingy, your whole body will be meaning your whole life is going to be stingy, I guess I'd say Um, self what I say is self centered it it, honestly, it's a theological statement. Mm. Whether you feel chronically like God is not watching over you and you need to, uh, I need to save every penny and I can't give anything any because God isn't watching over me. Mm. You don't quite say that, but that's why you can't be generous is because you're so terrified because you don't really believe in God. Mm. <laughs> and so, but if you, once you understand that this is about generosity with money, then when you read that passage, 622, you notice that right before it is, Do not lay up yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Well, that's about money. Mm -hmm. And then right after it says, Do not, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate one or love, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so, what I find that so cool is that once you understand that idiom, a whole chunk of text becomes one intelligent, interesting nuanced sermon whereas if you don't know that it just it's you've got all sorts of useless uh interpretation (laughs) that um doesn't allow you to understand what jesus talking about right there
0: yeah they start talking about uh you you would think like okay so what does it mean to have a good eye what does it mean to have a bad eye a healthy you know like all these translations it starts talking about what is your uh, it, it lends itself to a lot of speculation whereas if you recognize the idiom Mm -hmm. then you're like oh he's still talking about being stingy and being miserly versus being generous
1: yeah right
0: but it's an idiom it's an idiom it's a figure of speech
1: yeah that's we don't realize that other languages besides ours have figures of speech right right. we don't quite catch that it's it's you know, people have written lovely sermons about if you have a good outlook on light, because you're thinking your eye is your outlook or right, your right. look towards God. You know, people can spiritualize it and come up with something satisfying, but they're still, it might be satisfying, but it wasn't what he's was talking about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I when I talk about idioms in, in teaching mm-hmm. the Bible and, and especially language stuff, mm-hmm. well, I, what I try to tell people is, listen, Mm-hmm. try translating top 40 song lyrics, like modern pop oh. songs, okay. try yeah. translating that into another language.
1: Sure. And yeah. and
0: what you're going to find is immediately it's going to become very hard. Yeah, you're right. going to realize, Oh, wait a minute. This is a figure of speech. I don't even think I'm, I don't even think about this, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's an idiom. And if I translate it literally into another language, they're going to ask me mm-hmm. like, like if I, if I, for instance, if I say, Oh man, that, that just totally came out of left field.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, yeah. we, we know, I mean, that's just an unexpected thing that happened, yes. but that is a baseball image. Yeah. And if right. you are translating into a culture, that's never heard of baseball mm-hmm. and yeah. doesn't know the significance of something coming out of left field, you know, it's like mm-hmm. you can, comp- they could do all kinds of studies in that language about mm-hmm. fields and the right versus the left. And they could come up with all. Oh. And at yeah, the end of the day, you'd be like, like you said, well,
1: right and left. That's yeah, clever,
0: right. but it's not what I was talking about.
1: <laughs> not right? Somebody says he kicked the bucket. Don't study kicking and buckets. Right. It's not about buckets or <laughs> kicking. There's nothing like that in there. Yeah, exactly. Idioms are they can be they can say opaque mm-hmm. that they can be completely unrelated to the words. So yeah, so that's why you need to know the culture. Yes. So yeah,
0: and and it's not like you it's not like you have to know Greek or Hebrew to know the truths of the Bible. Or, you know, we always want to avoid like language snobbery because unlike like say our Muslim friends who believe, you know, anytime you translate the Quran, it's no longer the Quran. Um, We don't believe that about scripture. God's we've never, I mean, even before Jesus scripture was translated into various languages. It's the, the message of scripture is what is important. But Mm
1: -hmm. if
0: we don't have access to the languages and the culture and the background, then it severely limits our ability to see the passage in its fullness. Yeah, that's right. And it can easily mislead us.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: And it's not a matter of salvation though. I mean, it's it's just understanding nuance versus missing something that, you know, makes a lot more sense of it.
1: That's right. And if any, what I when people say, well, which translation is the best? My answer is actually the best translation is not to only use one translation; is to have several in front of you because then you can see how this intelligent team kind of said it, emphasized this part of it, and you see it. Um, if you know enough, it actually helps. I mean, because every language every language has these vagueness and uh, uh, mm-hmm. wide semantic range and uh, your brain is pre-set up to say um uh you gotta hit no you gotta run in baseball you got she gotta you gotta run in a stocking or you gotta run in after work mm-hmm. and you automatically go oh yeah it, it's not like our brains can't do that but yeah. it's when you have another language that doesn't do it and you can speak both languages that you can define it and so if you know French, you say, just say, I know a fact. But if you say, je connais, that means I know a person. And we use the same word, know, for both facts and persons, but it's when you're speaking French you can define that. And so it's actually, it's almost useful to have a couple languages so that you can compare languages and then you're you're showing the limits of the semantic range and giving nuances and we so that's yeah it can be very helpful to have more
0: you you said that in uh that was one of the things you said in the book that i absolutely could not agree more with is Hmm. have when if you don't know greek or hebrew yeah pick uh and you gave suggestions it was either in the appendix of this one or was it in reading with it was in one of these. Yeah, Yeah, in reading the Bible, which we'll get to in a minute, but you actually give some suggestions in the appendix. And I I thought they were great suggestions. They're very Mm -hmm. similar to in our course here, Bible for the rest of us. We talk, if you can't read Greek or Hebrew, pick a middle of the road translation as your base translation and then compare it with one on either end of the uh, spectrum, word for word or thought for thought. And what you're doing is exactly Mm -hmm. what you said. You're getting a you're seeing a range and that will help clue you in on the actual the possibilities of the meaning we do that here in our study through the psalms Uh, i always have at least seven eight different translations side by side on the screen so as we're walking through the hebrew you're able to point out oh that's why the net bible said went with this but the jps went with this and the king james went with this it helps Mm -hmm. you get a fuller understanding Right. Yeah. Exactly. Don't 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 wedge yourself, viewers, don't wedge yourself to one translation, even no matter how much you really, really, really like it. Um, right. because the people who translated it would probably be the first ones to tell you that's not the only way that the text can be translated. It's just what right. they think makes the most sense. Right. Um yeah. no Bible tribalism. Well, there's what you <laughs> one more example you gave, uh, and then we'll move on to a reading with Rabbi Jesus. But on page 134, mm-hmm. you talked about the concept of weighing the laws. And you gave the example that when people disregard this very Jewish approach to handling laws, Mm -hmm. you end up with some ethical um, wackiness. Uh, You gave an example of um, Jehovah's witness refusing blood transfusions, even if it means that their child is going to die and how that's an example of clearly not weighing the law that Jesus would have never recommended, but you also gave uh, a church father, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. a couple of church fathers when it came to uh, lying, like never mm-hmm. telling a lie, even if it means saving the life of, yeah. you know, like right. hiding Jews from the Nazis yeah. or,
1: yes. right, uh huh. Mm-hmm. So
0: what is weighing the law? What what does that look like in a Jewish context? Um,
1: well, um, uh, well, there's one. There are a few principles that uh that they use that uh, one was being discussed quite a bit in Jesus time and you hear him talking about it and mm-hmm. it's nefesh which means to means to preserve life and it's about the idea that um that you can set aside that the purpose of Torah is to give life and you can especially it's about Shabbat and things that are not allowed on Shabbat are not just allowed but they are Commanded sometimes if they you need to do them to save life, Mm -hmm. and so that's actually a uh, so you will see Jewish um, doctors and nurses going to the hospital on the Sabbath because you must because they might save a life that day and even if there's a potential to save life you got to do it Mm -hmm. so that's a cool thing but you actually hear Jesus he's kind of extending it a little bit he's talking about it but he's extending it because he 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 uses um, the, you know, if you have a, a, a sheep that has fallen into a well or a donkey that has fallen into a well, won't you pick it up? Actually, there, there's actually another command. It's called, um, let's see, that is to prevent suffering of animals, mm-hmm. prevent the suffering of uh, the living things. And that is that, you know, if... Uh, The reason that they didn't allow people to untie their animals is because the whole point of Shabbat is to allow your animals to rest Mm -hmm. from slaving for you all week long and you let them rest. And so you let them and so you keep them tied up. But on the other hand, if you don't untie them so they can go out and get a drink, they're going to get really unhappy (laughs) in the the day. They'll all be dehydrated. And so um, you cannot... So that's why um the one command, keep him tied up so that you won't go plow with him. That's part of they call it halakha, the walking out of the Sabbath command is we do not do not untie your donkey, but you can untie him if you're gonna go let him get a drink. Mm-hmm. So that's you wait the commands. But Jesus is actually broadening the save life because when there are a couple places where it says that people wait till after the Sabbath is over to come to him to be healed. Um, they're in Mark. They wait till the Sabbath's over. And when the sun goes down, they come uh, then because they're like, mm, I'm not sure if that's okay. But Jesus is saying it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath and, and especially to relieve suffering. Because if you do that for an animal, why wouldn't you do it for a human? Mm-hmm. And so he's, a, he's, a, he's, He's actually debating a rabbinic – he's in the middle of the argument, and he is actually pushing it. But he's using the laws of animals to broaden the laws of how would we help. He's using the
0: the calviomer concept of how much more. That's right. Like, if you would do it for this, how much more should you do it for this? Kind of giving people perspective. Mm -hmm. There's a misconception that Jesus, Mm -hmm. among Christians, they think that uh, Jesus – opposed Mm -hmm. the law or or Mm -hmm. you know did something against the law but if you look jesus never speaks against the law he always speaks against the misapplication of the law and the misuse of the law and in his earthly ministry he Mm -hmm. never you never see jesus saying it is written Mm -hmm. but I say, you know, he says, you have no heard else. it said, right. yeah. but yeah. I say he's always critiquing the traditions,
1: uh, right. the
0: hedge around Torah. That's the thing. But 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 only when it's putting Torah against life, against what Torah was intended to do. And, you know, the example of him using the example of uh, declaring something Corban so that you don't have to give it away to your parents. Yeah. And, and he's just saying this, this is your, your, you, we would call, we call it loopholes. Like you're using yeah. a loophole and yeah. you don't find many loopholes in no. the approach right. to Torah that, that Judaism incorporates. You never have They They've always recognized sometimes two laws are going to be at conflict with one another. Yeah. And yeah. when that happens, you don't just go, I don't know. Oh, it looks like yeah. I'm stuck.
1: Well, you, my, my Lutheran pastor teachers would be, that just shows how stupid the law is. The whole point of the law is to show how lost you are. And see, <laughs> huh, I, we, yeah, so you just go on sinning. You know, hey, I, I just do what I feel like because stupid law.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And really, I grew up with kind of a really bad attitude towards any kind of laws. Mm-hmm. I think, well, every sinner kind of doesn't like to be told, can't do that, yeah. you know,
0: <laughs> but. Well, yeah, even, and I know in Luther, I know because I just, in, I've just reviewed two Lutheran study Bibles this past mm-hmm. year. Uh, mm-hmm. And I know that the law gospel distinction is a characteristic of Luther. Mm-hmm. Every passage is either law or gospel. Law is what condemns. Mm-hmm. Gospel is what frees. Yeah. And it's a yeah, very well, Um, I love my Lutheran friends, but I think that's just an an aspect of Lutheran theology that's, that's not correct Uh, because the law was, and, and and Carmen Imes has pointed this out in, in bearing God's name. uh, Yeah. Bearing God's name. She's talked about the, the joyousness of the law and the freedom of the law and how it was never seen as this heavy burden this obligation. It was never seen the way Martin Luther's, own personal struggle with his view of holiness and sanctification was. And, but Luther read that back into Romans seven. He read it back into discussions about the law. He read it back into the Pharisees and kind of basically took Reformation era, Catholic priests and just kind of stuck them in the character of the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's compelling, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't do justice to the actual Jewish background. And
1: exactly.
0: It's good seeing like even works by E. P. Sanders and, and you know, Tom Wright and James Donne yeah. and these others that have I think after finally decades have mm-hmm. started to pull Protestantism away from that uh hyper condemnation of yeah. of Jewishness and yeah. have said, No, no, Jesus is thoroughly yeah. within that. Um mm-hmm. Let's okay, let's jump to I want to jump uh to your the final book that I just finished reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus. Hey. This one is by Baker. Yeah. Why is this one by Baker and uh, not Dupin? Uh Is there a story behind there or is it just nah they wanted not to do really. it? Okay.
1: Um, yeah, uh, actually, well, I, I I actually signed two contracts. Okay. When we we signed two contracts when I wrote this book, I had bound myself to also writing this book too. Mm. Um and so we um uh the way you do in the writing world is you write a proposal and you send it around and um I think Zonervan might have they might have said, Oh I don't know if people are gonna get sick of this motif, Lois. Yeah gotcha. Jesus, you know, I don't know. And so <laughs> it was Baker that was like, ooh, sounds great. Yeah. There was one editor was really excited and I like, okay, you sound more excited and you'll give me a little bit more money. And I don't think the money isn't a big deal, but you know, who you work with.
0: Right, I, right, right.
1: It helps I live in Holland, Michigan, that is not far from Grand Rapids. Mm-hmm. And I like to meet people in person. And so I wanna work with people I see their faces then. Right. So I wanted to work with somebody who's excited about the book,
0: yeah, yeah, well you know, I was just curious because I don't know how the publishing world works. Oh, um, great. Right. I have written one article ever for pay um, right. and yeah. all books and ebooks I've done has all just been self-published uh, resources oh, for yeah. the website. so I I just think it's fascinating uh, how
1: that works uh, the kind of the insider stuff See myself um, it, can't believe that they let me in, but the first editor, the one who was writing, I was writing, sitting for, mm. he was kind of terrified. He thought, oh, she's going to just make up craziness. <laughs> and then he, w- he wrote me this lovely letter. He says, oh, I I loved your end notes. And y- you saw me writing on that mm. on your blog is that uh, Anne kind of didn't want to have a little footnotes all over because she said, right. oh, they look intimidating. Don't put those in. <laughs> They call it hidden end notes, where they don't even um, they don't even put the numbers in. You have to go to the end of the book. Yeah, he's like, oh, the numbers in these <laughs> in. But the point being, it shows my scholarship. Yes. That's
0: the, oh, I yeah. We the, for viewers that don't know, um, Lois and I are Facebook friends, and I made a post on Facebook last week saying oh. that in the in the digital age, there's no excuse yes. to ever have end notes yes. uh, for printed books. Yeah, there's great. no excuse to ever have end notes. Um, yeah. Richard Middleton made a comment about um, mm-hmm. digital resources. And I said, yeah, digital, because they hyperlink. So I'm reading yeah. on my Kindle. I just tap the note and boom, it's yeah. right there. And then I close it and I'm back where I was reading. But when I'm reading a printed book, I always have to have two bookmarks. I have the one where I'm reading and then at the end mm-hmm. notes. And I found myself in in scholarly work or in work that's making right. claims that need to be verified. Um yeah. I'm a right. big fan of footnotes on the page because you're not having to put back and forth. But in yeah. notes are better than no notes.
1: <laughs> That's right. There you go. And
0: right. your books, yeah. all the end notes in them are mm-hmm. they're very helpful because one of the things you do is uh-huh. you point back to original sources as much as possible. Right. And you like when you make a claim, there were uh-huh. there were very few times where you would say something and not note where you could find that in, in, you know, whether it's the Mishnah, the Talmud, um, other works. And that's really important because it gives the reader the ability to check your work. And that's something that every writer who's writing for people to learn something should be willing to do is like, show your it's part of that arguing it's part of that disputation that sparring is i've got to see not just your conclusion because you write it on the page but then i want to see the source mm-hmm. and and see how you got to that conclusion from that source
1: that's, right. that's just awesome.
0: normal procedure and it's good it's healthy and i think everybody should do that
1: Right, and i would actually add what i find Maybe I check the source out of a skeptical reason, but often what happens is when I read the source, I understand better why the person is making the point, and I understand it with more, I'm more convinced by their point, just by seeing why they came with out of what they came started with, like, oh, that was great that you got this from there. Yeah. It helps, it gives you a wider understanding of the point they're trying to make, because it's, you know, the whole telephone thing where you only catch part of everything and you only Pass on part of it, just by nature of the fact. One of one hard thing about writing a book is the its finiteness mm-hmm. that you can't mash every darn thing into it that you could tell people, and right. so you can't show you can't show them your whole notes. You have to send them back. So it's a fine, it's a good idea to go check what where yeah. I got it from. Yeah, it, yeah. no,
0: it, it's crucial, and and especially, and we'll talk about. Mm, We'll talk about this a little bit more in a minute. So I'll just give a teaser. It's especially important in the field that you write about yeah. because there's so much foolishness out there that is not based in any primary source. And we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. That's just a teaser. Um, but on page 36, so in reading with Rabbi Jesus, on page 36, you opened up with the discussion of, it's called, I'm feeling a little weird. And I knew exactly what you meant, but only because I had just last year finished reading uh, Andrew Wilson's book, Remaking the World. And that's one that Kenneth Birding turned me on to. And it was basically what Wilson does. He's a, a British historian and pastor. Is he? Um, he's, he's awesome, by the way, Andrew. I love his work. He does a lot of background, biblical background stuff. And his articles in, in CT are always great. But he writes about how our entire world that we mm-hmm. live in today mm-hmm. is remarkably, you're, you're, it's remarkable how much of it you can trace back to the year 1776. Yeah, right. <laughs> and not just America, in Europe right. and what was going on. And he, yeah, right. it's a, it's a, it was one of the top books I recommended last year that has nothing to do with biblical scholarship, but everything to do with biblical worldview. And so when you brought it up, when you mentioned it in, in you know, weird culture,
1: yeah, right. I was
0: like, yeah. oh, I know what this is. And this is good. And so yeah. unpack just real quick for the viewers, what is a weird culture? That's an acronym.
1: By the way, I got the book, right? I got it on Audible. So. I
0: did too. That's how I, I listened to it. Yeah.
1: So I, I got I was listening about it last oh. night because it sounded like fun. So. Oh, it's
0: so good. It's so, so good. <laughs> well,
1: the word, the, the, this acronym weird mm-hmm. W I R D came from psychologists. Uh, it was it's very recent. Mm-hmm. I call it two thousand and ten was the study that was published yeah. that said you know that pretty much all of psychological research has been done with Western Westerners, meaning Europeans and Americans, mm-hmm. and you know those other countries related Australia and other English speaking right. and other technological science-based culture cultures, you know, usually when you map out any trait, you'll have kind of, they call it a normal distribution. it will be bump in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then it goes, you have some that are goofy, very different, but they're on one end or the other, but it's right. a bump. Right. Well, the, curve, the bell curve, the bell curve. Mm-hmm. But what they found was that often, uh, us westerners were off the edge they were outliers that were utterly on on a few things and the traits that those were what they named western educated and that's what that's how the word came about so western Mm -hmm. weird one is western Mm -hmm. meaning that we come from a culture that um uh focuses very much on science and reason and post enlightenment argumentation, you know, Mm -hmm. that's, that's Westernism. E is for educated. Mm -hmm. And we have a Western education that is high on science. And then, well, my point was to say, isn't it amazing how much the Bible doesn't assume those things? Mm -hmm. Um, It has a different kind of education. And it took me a while to figure out that our education is very secular We leave, you know, especially in America, you don't you leave the religion out of it and you spend all your time reading, working on science and math and whatever. But you do not learn your scriptures, Mm -hmm. whereas Jesus's education was very heavy on knowing scripture and he assumed it. That's one of the things about killed me when I started learning his Jewish context. He assumes we know our our Old Testament very well mm-hmm. and so that's that's educate we have a strong education that is not on our scriptures which really screws us up when we try to read our bibles mm. because we don't know our text very well Right, okay, educated western educated industrialized where we tend to define ourselves by our jobs you know my work is my life mm-hmm. you know um as opposed Post-industrialization, that's what really was starting to happen right in the late, you know, 1700s, yep. 1800s. This idea of I learn, I inherit a tradition from my family. That's mm. what defines me. That's the pre-industrial way mm. where you're defined by your family, not by your job and what you make of your life in money, but by your family. So that's pre-industrial versus post-industrial. Mm. So, And
0: the then way. what's R?
1: Okay. Western educated,
0: industrialized,
1: rich, 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 Rich. Mm -hmm. um, the easiest way to, you know, you met my friend Millie from Uganda. Mm -hmm. Mm Um, another friend of mine, he's actually now the archbishop of Uganda. He went, he came with her same seminary, but the, when I got, he was in my Bible study. And at the end of the year, they said, Oh, Stephen, what will you remember the most from living in America? He said, ah, oh, for this one year, I did not have to worry about what I would eat. Like, mm. and I was stunned. I could not believe he said that. And and so when when they say give us our daily bread, it is a burning desire. And then as I started learning, um, many cultures, um, especially in the eastern eastern world, like, did you have rice this morning? Or did you have rice to it's The way we ask how about the weather, they'll ask, what did you eat today? Mm. Did you eat today? It's because everybody has to think about that all the time. Anyhow, so rich and democratic Mm -hmm. is the last. And that's, yay, cheers for us. We live in a society where each one of us is is asked to give our opinion on who should, on all the decisions that are made for us. It sounds really good But it's not the way of the world.
0: Yes, that that concept, it's not like any of the things listed, any of the weird qualities, it's not like any of them are are morally wrong or that we have to jettison any of them. Some would call them progress. Some would call them just more preferable than others. Regardless, the point of this section of the book is... Mm -hmm. We just need to know these are the lenses that we are viewing scripture through, and you have to be able if you wear glasses, you have to be able to take your glasses off and clean your lenses every now and then you can put them back on, but it's helpful to take your glasses off sometimes and see the world through mm-hmm. a different set of lenses yeah. and mm-hmm. if we're un if we're unaware of it, then we don't even know what to look for yeah, and right. so the perp- so when you're writing in this, it's really helpful um because Mm -hmm. it's letting people realize this is why we naturally approach scripture and find, get certain conclusions because that's the world that we come from. And Mm -hmm. whether or not those conclusions are accurate or not, we have to be able to put those Mm -hmm. lenses aside and say, how would an ancient Jewish peasant, Eastern non-democratic, uh, you know, um, apprentice-educated, how would they have approached these stories, these passages, these teachings? Mm -hmm. And it makes Mm -hmm. a difference. On page 125, and and this Mm -hmm. will segue in. This is one example. We do not have a cultural category.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. We don't think we do, at least. But you argue that actually we do. For the eunuch. The concept of a eunuch in the ancient
1: world. Yeah.
0: Now, we think of a eunuch, and we okay, back in ancient times, they used to you know, castrate boys uh, either to keep their pretty singing voices for their cathedral or so that they could trust them around the king's harem of women um, or just to emasculate them and make them serve as slaves yeah. for whatever reason or people right. who were born with deformities, malfunctioning bodily functions. So there was this category called the eunuch. Mm -hmm. That's right. Everybody kind of knew what it involved. Now today, we don't exactly have the same category. So when we read (laughs) Jesus's discussion of eunuchs and those who choose to become eunuchs for the kingdom, or those who are born eunuchs or whatever,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: we may not readers may not know what to do with that exactly. And you. Have a beautiful part where you tie it into some modern conditions that people do find themselves in. So unpack that for us, the concept of the eunuch and what well, it means for us.
1: Well, you have to assume that what defines you is your family and your ability to make a family. And mm-hmm. so, uh, man, you know, Abraham is is disconsolate because he can't have children, and he feels cursed about, and I'm sure Sarah is too, and it is when God gives him a great family that shows his his how wonderful he is, and mm-hmm. so to be willing to give up your family-making ability, like some of us single people, maybe you aren't doing that on purpose, but it's what's been happening mm-hmm. to you, it's a worldview change is the idea that I'm... You mean I don't have to have a family? I can serve God with my life, and so um, that's Jesus is really kind of he's doing a little twist. He's in, because eunuchs, um, I believe in the in the Torah, eunuchs are not allowed to come into the temple because they're usually because um, they're trying very hard to keep pagan worship practices out of of the temple. Mm. They that's why women are not priests because we're not going to do the sex thing that you guys do. Mm-hmm. Just when you wear, we wear pants, we don't do that stuff in the temple. But and so there's no eunuchs involved. But you can see in the in Esther and some of the later books is that eunuchs are also high officials. Often some of the and so Jesus is kind of respinning it as you know those people who some of those eunuchs were serving the king. And so he says some. In the same way, and he's talking to people who might forego getting married in order to, to be his disciple. Mm-hmm. Um, he reminds people, um, it's in Isaiah 56, where God makes this wonderful promise. Let says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold. I am a dry tree for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give it in my house and in my, and within my walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. You can hear that sons and daughters are how you, you make your name you keep your name known in the world because they will remember with great love your parenting Mm -hmm. Um, but and so it shows that that's what people ultimately want but god he promises him if you will serve me and i will accept you in my temple and i will give you something even better than um and so honestly i'm not married myself and i kind of I'm going to hold God to his premise.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you say on page uh, 125, you said, personally, I will be among the first to ask the Lord to fulfill his promise to give the eunuchs who serve him a, quote, yeah. name better than sons and daughters. Right. That was a beautiful line to me. and And the reason it was is because the over the past year disciple dojo has started a singles ministry we call the grown ups table and it's it's done entirely through facebook um and it's a community that's grown to around 2000 members all over the country some around the world but it's there's a deep need particularly among unmarried christians whether they've been married so widowed divorced um yep. abandoned or whether like myself never been married there's a deep need for community Mm -hmm. And there's also a deep pain for those who have longed for a family and have never experienced it. And and, you know, usually the uh, pain of childlessness gets acknowledged when it's a couple that that is struggling with infertility, like most churches have infertility support groups. And 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 it's almost like we recognize that as a very valid grief um, in something that brings grief. But there's not often any similar acknowledgement of people who are unmarried and therefore they can't have children. Like they they can't start a family because they don't have a wife or a husband, and and it's something that they've always wanted. And and in the grown ups table, you know, we talk about this. We openly uh, we don't shy away from it. We don't. It's not a pity party where we sit around and just bemoan singleness all the time. But there is a recognition that there's a mm-hmm. very deep pain for people who have wanted Mm -hmm. sons and daughters. They've wanted their family line to continue. They've, they've like, I think about, I'm on my dad's side. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm the last one. Mm -hmm. Like my, my, I had a sister, she got married. So the Smiths, she's now a Tanner. So she's joined another family. I'm the last Smith on that side of my family. Sure. And yes. I'm, it, it ends with me. I and know. every now and then that hits oh. me like, I, that makes me really sad sometimes. Like, yeah, right. and it's, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's painful, but that's not, certainly that's not something that single men talk about. And we just focus on, yeah, let me go serve the Lord and do all this
1: bodybuilding or whatever. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's right.
1: <sighs> focus
0: on being tough instead of those Tell stupid you emotions. <laughs> <laughs> but it, But it's a real pain. It, it is. And at times it can be a real source of grief. And and that's a guy saying this. Yeah, I think right. it's just as much, if not, I think it's probably more for yeah. women who have the ability to produce, like in theory, culturally, like you're the one that would actually bring forth a child and <laughs> and don't get to experience that. And they've wanted to. It's a very deep pain. And the fact that Jesus acknowledges the eunuch and he does so in the context of that promise in Isaiah that you're talking about, to me, that's like an untapped source of comfort or encouragement for people who are unmarried.
1: Really? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's a there's a. Um, yes, exactly. Thank you for saying that. And obviously you can see that it's major in my own life. Mm -hmm. It's yes, exactly. So, yeah.
0: Well, I love that Um, you put that in there and I love that the idea, this is also a very Jewish thing. The idea of holding God to his promises.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's
0: That's not as popular among Christians to have that attitude. It almost seems irreverent, but it it is thoroughly at home in the Hebrew Bible.
1: I have a, yes, I have a chapter called Praying with chutzpah, and yeah. it's about the fact that that people pray with chutzpah. Mm-hmm. God, you know, there's one guy who's he's like my it's a, one of my little quotes on the side. My wife has died, all my children has died, even my daughter. They were my comfort. Now I have only you. You must be my comfort, God. I have no one else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like. I'm holding you to this yeah. <laughs> because I don't have anybody else.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that reality, we see it in, I, I, I see it as I'm teaching through the Psalms here on the channel is you see a level of, we would say, boldness. We might even say irreverence, but it never actually devolves into that. Well, great. Uh, but from our perspective, as yeah. people who are just supposed to you know, well, it's the will of God, uh, who am mm-hmm. I to question? That's
1: right. yeah. The
0: psalmists and the prophets never, I mean, Habakkuk never took that approach. The right. psalmist never took that approach. Let's not even talk about Job. You know, like, it's a very Jewish. So I loved, I loved reading that for multiple reasons. Um, I related to it and also thought it's, it's a thoroughly biblical approach. Yeah. Right. Like, God, you made this promise. i am gonna hold you to it
1: i'm gonna hold you to it that's right
0: (laughs) well and there was one other thing in in the next page this touches on that eunuch's promise back in isaiah because it wasn't just a word to the eunuch it was also let the foreigner who has joined himself and this gets overlooked especially in some segments of the the hebrew roots or the the judaism uh within the church it gets overlooked that mm-hmm. in the old testament and Chris Wright brings this out really well in his writings in the mission of god um yeah. he says mm-hmm. it's always been god's plan to bring right. in the gentiles
1: yeah right mm-hmm. it's
0: always been god's plan to have a community of mm-hmm. m- every tongue every tribe every nation yeah
1: mm-hmm.
0: and i feel like even among i mean even going back to the time of the early christians you know paul had to deal with this the idea was well you got to first become jewish Right. Then you're truly a follower of Jesus, right. mm-hmm. and even today we you see this in. I'm, I'm very I'm being very careful because I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but it is something that does need to be acknowledged. You see this in some of the Hebrew Roots movement or some right. Messianic circles that mm-hmm. the Gentileness is almost frowned upon, yeah, Right. or anything that's not you know tzitzit wearing, shofar blowing, high holiday celebrating is is somehow less gospel. Um, and, and like I said, that's, I'm not saying that's the case with everybody, but it is, it is a tendency that I have seen and people in the movement have seen. You say on page 127, surprisingly, Paul does not say that a person doesn't need to be a son of Abraham to be saved. Rather, he deals with this issue by redefining what a son of Abraham is. Mm-hmm. stretching the definition to include the Gentiles, the very group not included in the definition, a son of Abraham. Mm-hmm. And this gets overlooked mm-hmm. on all sides of the discussion that there, there, it's, it's this tension that we have to hold like Jeremiah 31, yeah. new covenant, right? Like, okay, God's going to make a new covenant. And he says, it won't be like the covenant I made with your ancestors when I took Great. them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt. So, Gentile Christians are like, yeah, it won't be like the old covenant, it won't be like the covenant. But that section begins with the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Yeah. Right. So it's it's like, okay, it's got to be through Israel and Judah, but it's also not like the Torah of Sinai. Mm-hmm. What do we do with that? How can we do that? And Paul beautifully puts mm-hmm. them both together. How does he how how, what, how does he do it? What does it mean
1: does do it? by well, sons of Abraham? Well, some of Paul's proofs of that are that the Holy Spirit is being poured out on Gentiles before mm. they're being, they are not circumcised and God pours his Holy Spirit out. That's like, what? That's mm. impossible. And so that's part of his proof is that we know that God has been pouring his Spirit out on these people and he's been healing. He, they've been doing amazing stuff. So it's not just... He's not just that I'm coming up with a new doctrine now. He's Everybody realizes, wow, look at what they are really, these people. He's calling them. Mm-hmm. And that's so anathema. If you realize how anathema it is, imagine that 100 years from now, there's a cult of Billy Graham. <laughs> and they decide you don't need to believe in Jesus. You only need to believe in Billy Graham. Mm. And so, And Paul's out there saying, just believe in Billy Graham. I'm like what? <laughs> and so that's how he sounds to the Jews. What do you mean the Torah is the Torah teaches us to know how to do the will of a loving God. Mm-hmm. Why would you not? And they also are saying, look, we are sons of Abraham. You hear Jesus arguing about who's the sons of Abraham, but you find that often even in the Hebrew, that the the sons of somebody is somebody who's like them, not necessarily the their very offspring. Right. It'll talk in the it says and and um, Tubal Cain. He's the father of all the metal workers, mm-hmm. and so you you often hear. To um, there is very much a assumption. This is a big a part of what I was writing about in this book is to point out that they're making certain assumptions that you should know about. So that you can figure out what's going on with the plot. And one of them is, everybody assumes that the son of a parent will be like the parent. The Mm -hmm. father will be like, the son will be like, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And so Gentiles who have the faith of Abraham, who he himself was not circumcised when he put his faith in God. Mm -hmm. And God counted it to him as righteousness. And so that's where they're, they're quoting out of Genesis. You got to have a Bible verse. And so if God counted it towards righteousness, then he can count the faith of Gentiles as righteousness. Mm -hmm. Yes.
0: Where does that, so this is, this is monumental uh, for people to understand. And that's why Paul had to deal with, he had to deal with in Ephesians two, he had to deal with in Galatians three. Um, yeah. There's, and even today, even when I read stuff yeah. by f- friends of mine, and, and and scholars and writers, and and the question about Israel, like who is Israel, who are the Jews, who are the, and it's yeah. Paul was saying some pretty astounding claims in his yeah. writing to Gentiles, saying yeah. things like, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. is, it's doing exactly the, the it's, it's holding intention. He's yeah, saying, right. you Gentiles, so yes, God is mm-hmm. bringing salvation to the Gentiles, yeah. are Abraham's seed. So yes, the promise did come through the seed of Abraham, and it is yeah. a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Yeah. But it's all centered in the Messiah. Yeah, that's right. Israel's Great. Messiah. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's end with this quote on page 202 and 203. Okay, You talk about, you say mm-hmm. at the same time that Christians were chopping themselves free of their Jewish roots, mm-hmm. the synagogue was silencing the prophets prophecies of a coming Messiah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as a result of this sort of mm-hmm. whole new way of looking at, sons of Abraham and, and who is Jesus, the identity of Jesus is this Yeshua guy, Israel's Messiah. How can that be? There's not world peace. You know, there's not all these things that the Messiah is supposed to come and do. Mm -hmm. So Christianity started to pull away and Mm -hmm. de-Judaize.
1: Yeah.
0: At the same time, the synagogue started looking back at the scriptures that Christians were pointing to Mm -hmm. and saying, oh, no, 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 no. You're misinterpreting that that's not this this suffering servant is Israel or or maybe a specific messiah, it's not this Jesus yeah. guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they started yeah. so there was a there was it was there was both groups were moving away from each other
1: right.
0: over the identity of Jesus and, and over the identity of Israel. Right. The, who is carrying on the promises
1: right.
0: that God made to our father Abraham? Who is, you know, Jesus said if you were Children of Abraham, you would believe in me because. That's right. Mm-hmm. So, how yeah. has that separation, that parting of the ways, and the other forms yeah. of Judaism, for the most part, just kind of got obliterated by Rome?
1: Yeah.
0: And all that was left were basically rabbinic forms that that sort of reconstituted around the synagogue and and the reading of Torah rather than the sacrifices. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: then Christians, followers of Jesus. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. How did those two, as they're pulling apart, what was lost, what in, was lost? in all of that? That you that you seem like your your whole ministry seems to be, in a lot of ways, trying to say, "Hey, come back together." Not not salvation wise, yeah. like we're all just right. one big family. There are differences, right. mm-hmm. but we also can, like you talk about the group in Jerusalem that does scholarship mm-hmm. together, that studies together, that dialogues right. together.
1: Right. How do you see
0: yourself? helping bridge that divide
1: i feel like christians are like a bou- cut bouquet of flowers that were in a little vase of water and are it's only because of the holy spirit that we don't wilt and die <laughs> <laughs> what i mean is that we could keep growing and make a beautiful tree uh if we had more of our if we were still connected if you could do surgery on mm. the little stems to connect them to down.
0: To them back in you might say.
1: graph them back in like it, <laughs> that's right. Um, because there is it is it is ironic is that you have people who, it's like we dance around, you know, we talk about the Hill of Calvary and you know, a little picture of a hill with, and it, we, we kind of dance around this hill of the cross. Hmm. And we don't realize it. it's like it's connected down. It's like the peak of a mountain that goes way down, and it's deep, and it's rich, and it's incredible. And so we kind of we don't have a conception of kind of the enormous truths that we're um, aware of. And then on the other hand, you have the Jewish scholars, and I have to say, that, you know, when for, when somebody first said you might want to read this Jewish source, I'm like, well, what can they teach me? I mean, I like them. I understand they're doing their best, but, you know, where's the Holy Spirit? And they're not talking about Christ. They're not going to read it the way you wouldn't believe how much they can teach you. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. and but you got to have your discernment. You have to pray for discernment. You have to have discernment thinking, but you won't believe. But it is sad. To, you have these people who have, I would say, a mountain of knowledge of Scripture and honestly i would say the christian understanding of scripture is about this much it's got the peak on it it's got jesus i got but i'm going to say the overall volume is smaller mm-hmm. what they fill their lives with is doctrine and systematic theology and so there've been many more than one jewish guy he he says i go to the meetings I go to SBL and I've seen people, I've seen them drop they're like be shocked at how little Christians know, Christian scholars know of their old testament. Mm. And instead they spend all their time on systematic theology, which is all um if if you don't have your foundation of your house level, everything you build on it's gonna get wonkier and wonkier and wonkier. And so if you have a whole systematic theology built on this much. And not on the whole thing. How well is that house built? Mm.
0: So, for those who have made it this far in our discussion and you persevered to the end, you are faithful in all things. <laughs> so, Lois has agreed to give away a set of her, not just the three books, so the three books that I've read that we talked about. Um, she's also going to include the Two that she's mentioned on Hebrew words and a book that she edited that's by one of her biggest influences, David Biven, New Light on the Difficult Words of Jesus, Insight from His Jewish Context. So all of these books, Lois has agreed to give away to a Disciple Dojo viewer. So the whole set right there. So here's what you're going to do. If you would like to win this set of resources that Lois has... All you have to do is on this video in the comment section below, ask what you think is a good question about the Jewishness of Christianity. It it, it can be a very specific point. It can be a broader, like, why does this matter kind of point. Just any question you have. And on (laughs) February 15th, Lois is going to look at all the comments And Mm -hmm. she's going to choose what she thinks is the best question. And that will be the winner. And then I will put you guys in touch and you can arrange with her for shipping and you'll receive her work. And so that's going to be a gift from Lois to Disciple Dojo viewers. So leave your best question about the the Jewishness of Jesus in the comment section below. February 15th. And she's going to pick a winner and you're gonna receive a bunch of great resources. Now, if you're not the winner, don't fret. You still can access Lois's resources. So you can find Lois's work at ourrabbyjesus.com or egrc.net. All of her resources are available and you can find Lois's books on Amazon, but she also sells them directly at a better price. We're gonna put that link in the video description below. So if you've watched this interview and you're like, I want to know more. I'm I've Lois has wet my appetite for going deeper in understanding the Jewishness of Jesus and the Hebraic background of scripture and all of that fun stuff. Check the description notes. I'm going to put links to where you can find her stuff, links to her website. You can get in touch with Lois. If you may want to have her come talk to your church, your Sunday school class your small group, something like that. Um, You'll be able to do all of that, but, if you want to win a copy of her books, here's yeah. your chance to do so deadline February fifteenth. so if you see this video after February fifteenth I'm sorry but this contest is already over somebody's you? already won yeah. <laughs> Lois, thank you so much for coming for stepping into the dojo um, for for discussing and right. and thank you for your work I, I enjoy your book tremendously um you were you were so kind enough to give me copies of them and not even asking for a video just gave me copies to read and see what I thought. And I really did appreciate that. Uh, and so I was glad when you, when I asked, hey, you want to come on and talk about it for the end of Judaism January here at Disciple of <laughs> So thank you so much for spending some time this afternoon with us. I really, really appreciate it. And um, yeah, we'll have you back on sometime again soon.
1: Wonderful. Thanks so much, Jim.
0: Again, I wanna thank Lois for coming on and spending the afternoon talking with us. Good luck to those of you that want to enter to win her resources that she's graciously donating. And again, if you wanna enter, you have to leave your question in the comment section below before February 15th. On February 15th, she's gonna choose a winner. I'll announce it in a post here on YouTube. So if you're not following this channel, if you're not looking at the post, there have been a number of people who have won Disciple Dojo contests I still have their resources behind me because they never claimed them. I made a post. I put it out on our Instagram feed. I put it out on our YouTube feed, but I never heard back from the winners. So don't be one of those people. If you enter... Keep an eye out because it would be a shame for you to win and the resources just sit here. And again, even if you don't win and you're still interested in Lois's work, head over to OurRabbiJesus.com and check out Lois's work. I definitely recommend her books. They're very readable. They're very engaging. They're not too scholarly, but they're also not dumbed down. That sweet spot right in the middle where most Disciple Dojo viewers land and very much in keeping of what we're trying to do here on this channel. So check out Lois's stuff, subscribe if you haven't already, and stay tuned for more that we have coming up here at Disciple Dojo. In the meantime, as always, keep training.